This is the Disciple Makers Podcast. The following audio comes from the National Disciple Making Forum by Discipleship.org. The theme was Disciple Maker, and Global Discipleship Initiative hosted a track called The Power of Microgroups to Transform and Multiply Disciples. Greg Ogden facilitated this track for their team, and he has provided a quick one-page summary of how they advise people to do these microgroups. They spell it all out in just one page, and that one-page PDF is available for download for free through discipleship.org. So go online and download their free PDF on how to do microgroups at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. Now here's the track session for Global Discipleship Initiative. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to be together. I ask that you will bless our time and uh, what we do here, pure and simply, to enhance our capacity uh, to help people grow as followers of yours and, and then empower them to do that for others as well. Uh, let's, let's keep it simple. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the challenge of the, this series of workshops is going to be continuity. I can see that. Um, so we have some people back, and we have some new people who have joined us. Um, so we obviously put this together with the sense that we'd be building block upon block as we went. So let me do a quick review. How many are new of this session that were not here last time? Well, isn't that nice? Um, <laughs> so those of you who are new, turn around and tell the other people what you learned last time. You should do that. Do it that way. Um, okay, so we're, we're folk, our ministry is called Global Discipleship Initiative. Um, that's a, just an umbrella for a way we go about making disciples, uh, a, an approach uh, around microgroups, as we call them, groups of three or four, uh, and uh, feeling that that is the environment in which disciples can, in our experience, best grow and, and tra as transformed followers of Christ and then be able to be equipped in that context uh, to disciple others uh, as well. So what we, we laid some foundation in that last session uh, around why this might be an important uh, approach and why that might be a good environment. But I think we'll just jump right into this. I think you can catch up with us where we're going. Is it possible to get the handout from the other sheet? Uh, do we have leftovers from last session? Uh, of, a, a few left? Okay. But they did record it. Yes, it is, it is recorded. So you can, you'll so. catch it on the site. Okay, All of our great wisdom is on tape now, so um, you can get it. So I want to talk in this session about why uh, these groups seem to have the effect that they do. Um, I call these the hot houses of the Holy Spirit, the hot house effect, in terms of what happens uh, in these groups. So you can, I'm going to just jump right into the content. My name is Greg Ogden. Ralph Rittenhouse and I are partnering together. Uh, I been a career pastor for 38 years, and uh, pastor in a number of contexts, but the theme certainly that's run throughout my own pastoral ministry for all this time is this intentionality of making disciples in these, these smaller groups. So if there's one, one note that I have been singing all these years, it's been that. Um, so retired about five years ago, moved from Chicago to Monterey, California. You think there'd be any difference between the two? <laughs> Nah, pretty much the same. Yeah, but it's a beautiful setting. Where so, um, 
Ralph and I got to know each other a few years back because uh, he invited me down to his church in Camarillo. Um, actually, I was still in Chicago when I first uh, came to Camarillo. And uh, they were exploring this discipleship concepts that I was talking about in my book, Transforming Discipleship. Uh, I've got a couple of my books with us here. These are basically curriculum uh, to be used in a discipleship setting. So Discipleship Essentials is the kind of the main curriculum, a guide to building your life in Christ. And then if you want to start in a, in a kind of a less intensive way, but in some ways, oh, it's an on, this is an on-ramp to this, uh, an essential guide to becoming a disciple. Essentially answers the question, uh, if I want to be a disciple, what's expected of me? How do I get on, how do I get on that journey? So this is, as you can see, a lot shorter book. Um, but uh, so this just came out last year. Uh, this is this will have its 20th anniversary edition next year uh, when it, when it uh, comes out within Varsity Press. Both in Varsity Press books available in the Lifeway Bookstore. In fact, the first set of books that you will come across, uh, my six books, are the first things you will run into next to the cash register. I asked them to put that right next to the cash register for me. So, um, so those a couple of tools. Transforming discipleship is more of a text. Um, that describes the need for disciple-making today, Jesus and Paul's method of disciple-making, and then how do we take that method and apply it to the life of the church today. So it gives you kind of a script to follow, uh, and then that's the implementation material um, that I just, just showed you. So, um, Ralph, do you want to just say something about yourself at this point and uh, introduce yourself to the group? Um, my dad was a pastor. I grew up in a pastor's home. I started, I went first years out of college, went on staff with Campus Crusade for Christ for 14 years, and then um, moved back into a pastorate. I went to a small church in Camarillo, California, stayed 32 years. Can you imagine anybody putting up with me for 32 years? Uh, gracious people, lovely people, and the church grew and we built buildings and we made it. all these things that w would call uh, church success. And yet about seven years ago, we just came to the conclusion we weren't really success. We were not doing any kind of real discipleship. We had the people, we had the buildings, we had the programs, we had all the stuff, bells and whistles, but we were not doing discipleship like we knew we ought to be. Uh, and in fact, we didn't know anybody that was doing it because every place we'd gone to try to check out how you do church had shown us all kinds of other methods, but they weren't working either and they knew it. Uh, so I'm on a plane coming back from somewhere and I'm reading Leadership Journal and John Ortberg's talking about discipleship and he mentions Greg Ogden. I go home, I Google to find out who the guy is. I find his transforming discipleship. I'm reading it and saying, this is good. I got more copies, handed them out to some of my staff and we decided we'd do a project. We'd do a, a, a stealth uh, experiment. Uh, we'd just try it, see if it worked. I got a group of four, my administrative assistant, Gal, got a group of four, a couple of my other guys, staff guys got groups, and we started our gender-specific quads, and we started using this curriculum. Uh, within a year, my group had finished it, and they said, and, and they went off, and, and because it's built in with multiplication, from the very beginning, you sign up saying, I'll go get three more guys and do it again the next year. You know, my three guys went out and got three guys. And so we had four groups, and the gals' groups multiplied, and the other two, two groups multiplied. The third year, they multiplied again. The fourth year, they multiplied again. And we just saw this thing take over our church, spread out to other churches in the community, went overseas. It just went, it went nuts. And so I retired. <laughs> <laughs> and I joined Greg, and now we go around trying to teach other people how to do this in their churches. Thank you. Good. 
All right, without further ado, let's jump into the content. You have an outline, I trust, in front of you uh, for what we're covering in this session. And it uh, begins with, you know, what are the ingredients that make for uh, a transformative context, a setting? Why these groups of three or four maximize these elements and make for the transformation and multiplication process? When we open our hearts and, tra to, uh, hearts and transfer and trust to each other around the truth of God's word and a spirit of mutual or life-change accountability, we are engaged in God-given mission. We are in the Holy Spirit's hothouse of transformation. So, um, let me show you a picture of a prison. You might recognize the holy, hot house of the Holy Spirit. Uh, now, a friend of mine, uh, who is a chaplain at a prison in Texas, uh, read my book, Transforming Discipleship, and, and they had a faith-based unit within this Texas prison. Uh, it was a discipleship uh, program, ministry. 48 guys living in the same unit, uh, applied to be a part of that. And they were accepted because they wanted to be disciples of Jesus in prison. And so they built a mural around that, what I just read to you, hot house of the Holy Spirit, when we <coughs> open our hearts in transparent trust around the truth of God's word, the spirit of life change accountability. I've added the missional component since he did this. Uh, we are in the Holy Spirit's hot house of transformation. And I, I show, I've been to that prison a number of times and uh, gotten to know a lot of those guys and know their names. But I want to start with a letter that I got, because I think you will find this extremely inspiring. I, I do prison ministry on a weekly basis in California. Um, I realized that we actually had prisons in California, and I didn't have to go to Texas to go to prison. So I, about every, every Wednesday, I'm at uh, California, or at a correctional training facility in Soledad, about a 45-minute drive from my house. Uh, it's one of, the, one of the best things I have done since retirement. Um, but I got this letter from uh, a man by the name of Pete Newman. And he says, Dear Dr. Ogden, this letter feels long overdue. My name is Pete Newman, and I'm writing on behalf of the discipleship group from Jefferson City Correctional Center in Jefferson City, Missouri. You may remember that you donated some of your discipleship essentials books to us some years ago. I wanted to write to encourage you. God has used your words to make great impact here among the brothers in chains. A quick rundown of who we are and how this group got started. We are a level five maximum security prison. Many of us have life sentences and some of us will never leave these fences. It's a great temptation to believe that as society has deemed us unfit to live among them, God has given up on us as well. The lies the enemy whispers in our ears come in the form of doubt, guilt, shame, and a lot of uselessness. Quote, God will never use somebody like you. Quote, you are disqualified. Even, quote, God can never love someone like you. Thankfully, we believe that the Bible is true and the gospel is for us. Grace is amazing precisely because it saves wretches like us. Out of the ashes of our sin and addictions, God brought forth the beauty of a community of broken men desperate for a Savior. Also believing that the Great Commission is for us, we knew that we carried a responsibility to make disciples, Christ-centered, reproducing disciples. So several years ago, about 10 of us gathered together and came up with a strategy for reaching the men around us for Christ. Each of us would find two men who were saved, hungry, and untaught, and we'd take a year of our lives and pour into them. Of course, here is where you came in. Your curriculum and generosity to provide for us with books gave us a foundation to get started. 
I wish I could tell you that a couple of years later that every convict in prison was walking with the Lord. Of course, that is not the case. But this month, we are, have started our fourth generation of discipleship. Every man went through the program and then was challenged to find two faithful men to pass the baton of discipleship to. To see multiplication in action has been such a blessing. We are growing. And here's my favorite line in the letter. God is becoming famous here. Now listen to this. We have faced unique challenges. How do you disciple someone who can barely read? How do we overcome racial tension? How do you teach when you didn't even finish junior high school? We're not free to meet with, for Bible studies wherever we want. We can't rally at the local Starbucks for one-on-one discipleship. Yet God has been so faithful and the fruit is falling off the vines. More than 100 men have been discipled. They are going out and reproducing themselves in other prisons in Missouri and in the housing units here. One prison guard was doing room searches and came across your book. Inspired as we were, he went home, bought the book, and started his own group. (laughs) One church heard about what we were doing and based their college ministry on this plan. We had a Buddhist give his life to the Lord and join our group. What a joy it has been to see him grow, share the gospel, and study the word. We have lifelong criminals with terribly violent pasts teaching others how to live faithfully. Rapists are speaking about how to remain sexually pure with their guys. Murderers are dying to themselves and taking up their crosses and following Jesus. Drug users are becoming addicted to Christ. We feel like we have an Acts 2 church here. We meet every Wednesday night for worship, prayer, a short message, and accountability time with our groups. We then meet once or twice a week with our groups for discipleship, Bible study, and life-on-life ministry. And then he quotes uh, 1 Thessalonians 2.8. Having so fond an affection for you, we are pleased to impart to you not only the gospel, but our lives as well. It's a cool thing happening here. We just wanted to thank you for being obedient to the call that God has placed on your life. Like I said before, your faithfulness is making a great impact here in prison. Also, if you ever wanted to come and see us, we would be thrilled. Of course, we can't pay you. Unless you've started accepting gratuities of ramen noodle soups and cigarettes. (laughs) But we'd be so honored to have you come and speak to our group and encourage the brothers. I have not had an opportunity to go uh, to visit them. But why do I read that letter? Is that challenging to you? If they can do it there, (laughs) can't we do this, see this happen in our our own ministries? It's one of my my treasures uh, that I hold on to. I will hold on to it now. Okay, uh, so um, let's, let's look into this. Uh, GDI value, Global Discipleship Initiative value. God's word shapes our hearts in honest, open, mutually accountable environment. Uh, so why might creating an atmosphere of relational trust and transparency be integral for ongoing transformation in Christ-likeness? What is necessary for trust to develop so that people can share openly and honestly about what is real in their lives? We like to have you spend time reflecting on these, some things. Uh, Since we are committed to quads uh, in terms of sharing, we want you to break into groups of four, if you would, and uh, answer these two questions. Share your answers with us. Why why might an open environment, honest environment, be a necessary um, element for actual transformation to take place, the application of God's word? And how does trust develop? And maybe why might these smaller groups of three or four be ideal environments for trust to develop. Be careful of selecting who you bring in. Uh, So 
not just anybody can be ready to jump into that kind of honest atmosphere. Yeah. So it's oftentimes there's a progression for people in, in the life of the church. I know when I was pastor in Chicago, we had uh, a, a progression that we tried to guide people through in terms of how they would go deeper. You know, in that process, start with worship, mid-sized communities, small groups, and then the intimate community. Something I forgot to pass out in the last last session, but um, there's uh, Joseph Myers wrote a book called The Search of the Long. You might have read that. Uh, he talks about four spaces within a life of a church. Public space, which is identifying kind of with the church uh, through worship, or, or maybe you're just because your family is growing up in that church. You know, if somebody asks you what church do you go to, it's XYZ Church. Haven't been there in two years, but, you know, mm-hmm. if somebody dies, that's where I'm going. Uh, <laughs> uh, then you move from public space to social space. Social space is looking for people kind of like you, who, with with whom do you have chemistry? And so these would be a kind of mid-life, mid-sized community groups uh, would be would fit into that that social space. So where we have the ability to kind of choose who we want to associate with based upon some level of affinity. Uh, maybe it's common interest. Maybe it's just kind of personal chemistry, that level. But requirement uh, of commitment there is still pretty low. Uh, you, but you do have to show up to be able to find out those relationships. Then so public, social, personal space. And that's kind of the traditional size small group, uh, you know, 8 to 12 in size. Uh, where you're starting to share some things about yourself. People might know you in terms of the context of your faith journey that you're taking. Uh, might know your, your faith story. Uh, may even know some you know, things that are you know, somewhat sensitive in your life. Uh, but you haven't gotten down to the intimate space. So, so uh, public, social, personal, and intimate. And what we're talking about here is the intimate space. And you're right, not everybody is going to be ready uh, for that. Because, in fact, I would say one of the number one reasons why when you ask somebody to be a part of a group like that, they say no is why? They're fearful. Fearful. Fear. Fear is the number one obstacle. Uh, Oh, if I get too close to people, they're going to find out things about me that I don't want. Fear and level of commitment. Mm -hmm. Uh, It it automatically says if you're going to be in a group that size, (laughs) one, there's nowhere to hide. And secondly, I've got to show up regularly. And uh, that's, a, that's a level of commitment that is, is higher than oftentimes people uh, want to make. Any, any other further comments of why uh, that intimate space is important for transformation? In a sense, we're trying to move. When I was in church in Chicago, our church in Chicago, <clears throat> we talked about majoring in microgroups. And we're majoring in micro. Ultimate destination where we're trying to move people is into those groups. Uh, so that, that, that direction. Okay. Uh, what's necessary for trust to develop in a group uh, for that openness and sharing uh, that will occur? What are some of the elements that would be important there? You said consistency in the group. Consistency, yeah. So people showing up. Uh, if, if you don't know if somebody's going to be there, you, you can't count on them, uh, then the, the chances of, of being real open and honest with each other are not going to happen. Okay, yeah. Leader sets the tone. Okay. Leader sets so the, the, your, willingness, your willingness to open and share. Uh, one of the things I do early on in a new group is I ask people to share their faith journey. And uh, I talk, ask them, say, well, you know, what was life like in your home growing up in terms of faith? When, when in your life have you, have, have you felt closest to God? When in your life have you felt furthest away 
from God. Share both of those uh, kinds of things. And I, I say that the, the person who has convened the group, who has brought the group together, should be the first one to share their story. So you can model uh, your own honesty in, in, that, in that setting. Okay. Confidentiality. Confidentiality. Uh, that should be a part of the covenants. Uh, I, I didn't make that explicit part of the Discipleship Essentials Covenant. Uh, probably should have, but you can add that. I always, I always say you can add any element, but that's really a necessary element. What's, what's shared in the group stays in the group, unless explicitly permission is given to let it be, be told outside the group. So if you're worried about that and you're sharing something sensitive, obviously that, that, uh, that's not going to happen. You're not going to do that. Okay. Good. Um, so let me, uh, sometimes a, a way to make a point is to, laugh at ourselves, and uh, to share the opposite point of what we're trying to make now. So let's have a little interlude and enjoy this story. Are you tired of small groups always getting into your business, trying to get you to share your feelings, discuss your past, confess your sins? Are you just looking for a place to kick it, network, maybe get some free grub? Me too. That's why I created what I believe to be the world's first openly shallow small group. We're not here to deal with messy stuff like feelings and emotions. You got problems? You deal with that. You're an adult. Life ain't easy. So stop the pity party. We all have our issues. We don't really want to do life together. Frankly, it's shallow small group. We try not to do much of anything at all. You'll never hear us use the term, unpack that thought. We're sure it's packed away for a really good reason. She's <laughs> <laughs> the term accountability unless we're talking about someone who deals with numbers. Hey dude, thanks for doing my taxes. You have great accountability. And spiritual growth. Who wants growth? I had a growth removed last week. That's not pleasant. There's no pressure here to remember each other's name. Oh, I'm like, oh. Hey man, how's it going? Oh, dude. We know you have a name, and that's the important thing. You got tickets to the big game? Sweet. Let's spend some time on that. Oh, you and your wife are struggling financially? There's tension in the relationship? That's not really the vibe we're going for. We avoid conflict like the plague. And there will never, ever be an awkward silence. That's our guarantee to you. We hate bad theology as much as the next guy, and we know the surest way to prevent bad theology is to avoid theology altogether. <laughs> and outreach? This is the only outreach you'll ever have to do. Some people say we're superficial, but hey, the word supers and superficial. I mean, who doesn't want to be super? Shallow small group, because when things get too deep, people drown. <laughs> Why don't you join us? <laughs> well, sometimes it's just better to you know, take a little laugh at ourselves. Okay, uh, join me on your outline, if you would, under climactic condition number one, transparent trust. And uh, we're kind of working off of a, of a key principle here. The extent to which we are willing to reveal to others those areas of our life that need God's transforming touch is the extent to which we are inviting the Holy Spirit to make us new. Um, so, on a you know hor- vertical level, um, what we're saying to God uh, is we do want to be your persons, but we need to have people in our lives on a horizontal level 
that we're willing to open our lives up to uh, as a sign of our seriousness about the transformation that we are willing to engage in. And uh, admittedly, that is, is scary for some. You know, we might say, well, you know, why do I need to open my life up to other people if I'm open and transparent before God? Isn't that enough? Uh, I mean, if I'm not trying to pull the wool over God's eyes, hmm, that's the problem, isn't it? <laughs> uh, we sometimes, I think we can even think we can uh, outfox God. Uh, this, there, there was a, uh, a note uh, received by the IRS. IRS received the following note. Gentlemen, enclosed, you will find a check for $150. I cheated on my income tax return last year and have not been able to sleep ever since. If I still have trouble sleeping, I will send you the rest. <laughs> I will be honest up to a point. I can't admit, I, I don't think there was probably any return address on that, on that note. Uh, so, opening up our transparent trust. So, um, what's, what is that trust? What is that, um, the trust that, that we wanted to build on? You know, it's what makes us trustworthy. Well, four, four qualities of trust that come to my mind. And you've already mentioned these. Trust keeps confidences. Um, so we uh, are willing to share with each other only to the extent that we will hold things uh, within a certain circle. Uh, have any of us had that experience of sharing something that was very sensitive and finding out through somebody else they had heard about that? Well, that'll, that'll put an end to that whole experience quite quickly, won't it? Uh, trust is full of grace. Um, it's non-judgmental. It's not comparing. Uh, when we receive uh, understanding and, and ex God's accepting heart, there's freedom to share ourselves um, that way. So a non-condemning atmosphere. Um, it, it's, it's, in a sense, it's a non-shockable atmosphere. Um, all of us are capable of certain either thought processes or things that we have done that we are not... Uh, not um, happy about, that we are ashamed of. Trust listens. Probably this is one of the, the most important qualities when we get into kind of some stages of, of trust development here. Listening is a very important stage. Uh, do we really hear somebody out? Do we show our eagerness to, to learn more? Do we ask questions? Do we, are we active listeners? Uh, which is probably one of the best expressions of love that we can give, give to people is that active listening um, in, in terms of building trust. And uh, trust is rooted in humility. Uh, the humble person has no pretense about our own capacity for sin. Um, I just finished reading a, a wonderful biography of Martin Luther. And Luther was generally a, a quite upstanding man. But towards the end of his life, he went off the rails in terms of his attitude towards Jews and said some things that were vile and ugly uh, and uh, just seemingly so out of character to what he had been and, and even previously had said uh, in his life. So, um, and people can't, can't make sense of it. How did this happen to this person you know, that was so uh, upstanding of, of everything else but were capable of, of things that are quite grotesque and therefore we need to offer that kind of grace of humility uh, to others uh, as well. So I share uh, on here the kind of some stages of trust development. Uh, let me just kind of walk us through a, a little bit of this and you can, we can add to our own. 
the first one stage uh, is affirmation. I, I sort of visualize this as moving stage at a time into deeper waters. So when, when a new group starts, um, oftentimes, what's the experience for people? Just kind of a bit of nervousness. Uh, I'm going to like the people that are around me. Uh, are these people going to be for me? You know, are they going to be a bore to be with? <laughs> uh, there's questions uh, that, that you start with. Uh, that's why oftentimes in my very first beginning, and what happens when you start laughing at the stories that we have is that the anxiety level goes down very quickly. So just some intentional kind of sharing questions that uh, can begin, begin an experience. But I think the whole issue of uh, people asking, are these people for me? Are they going to be my cheerleaders? Are they going to be the ones in my corner really cheering us on? I, there was a period of about five years when I was out of the pastorate. I was director of doctor ministry program at Fuller Seminary. And so I was a parishioner during that period of time rather than a preacher. So I'd come, come to worship. And one morning I dashed into the restroom prior to worship. And as I was washing my hands, one of our key worship leaders came in prior, prior to worship. And uh, I said to myself, I'm going to take the opportunity to thank Chris for what he does for our congregation. Uh, Chris, you know, I don't know how you do it, but you point us to Jesus, you lose yourself in it, and you are such a gift to this church. And uh, his response to me really caught me off guard. He said, thank you so much. I hardly ever hear that. And it's caused me to realize, boy, do we give the kind of affirmations and encouragements um, that we could uh, to people as a way of just building the foundation of the, of the relationship. Uh, so I like to say the world does a lot better job of beating us up than building us up. And if we can give the other message, um, that kind of begins that, that journey. And then uh, we move into walking with each other uh, in difficult times. One of the things I love about the length of discipleship groups, they run for a year, year and a quarter, year and a half, in terms of going through discipleship essentials. And invariably, during that time, something of a life, quality of life threatening thing is going to happen to one or more of the people in the groups. Um, I remember Grant, I can use his real name here in this setting. Grant is a personal injury attorney in Chicago. Uh, our discipleship group met in his law office, and we met around his his, his um conference table. And during the entire time uh, that we were meeting together, his business was always on the jeopardy of going under. Would he have enough money to survive to carry on? And he used to say to us, my old friend fear is back. We all knew what he was talking about because he didn't know whether he was going to make it. He lost a, a case that he'd spent years investing in. And he wrote this note to me after that. He said, we have endured great hardship, hoping for a better future. Now it seems that that future will not come to pass. I must face the reality that the career I worked for for 18 years is not working. I am 45 years old and must rely on my mom for handouts. I have bills to pay, a car that hardly runs, a crushed spirit. If dreams sustain a man, I'm in real trouble. Well, an incident occurred. We were praying on a our group met on Thursday morning, 6.30 in his, in his law office. Um, he needed money to survive the next day. If he didn't get enough money the next day, he would have to let his personnel go and maybe close down the office. So we are praying about that that Thursday morning. Friday comes along. His wife was the one that wrote the checks uh, for his personnel. 
The mail came on Friday, and lo and behold, there was a check in the mail from a client that he had, was delinquent on his payment that he had simply written off, and it showed up <laughs> just in time so that he could pay off those bills. I'm happy to say today, Grant's law office is thriving and, and doing well, but it was, it's those opportunities to go through those kind of life-challenging experiences with people uh, alongside of them um, that was there. So walking with each other during difficult times. I've been in the trenches with men struggling with long-term unemployment, shaky marriages, runaway children, imminent home and foreclosures, battling various kinds of addictions or life-threatening illnesses, major changes in vocations. Uh, it's just great to be with each other during that time and to, to provide a steady environment. That builds trust as, you, as you're going through the difficult times. Uh, being a reflective listener is the third stage here that I, that I mentioned. Hearing what's deep in the hearts of people. All of us have, I think, hopes and dreams, maybe God visions of where God would use us uh, in our life. And to be able to give birth to those through a listening process is, is a wonderful thing. Dave was in the insurance business for 32 years. And he had built a great clientele, a wonderful reputation in the insurance business, and it was a wonderful follower of Christ. He was looked to by peers and others as one who was just solid in his faith. But after 32 years in ministry, he kind of had that, you know, the halftime experience. Is this all there is? Is this what I'm called to just to continue on in this business? And he, he saw a kind of an advertisement for a kind of a business ministry, you might call it. Uh, it's called C12. It's working with Christian CEOs to help them run their businesses as disciples of Jesus. And he said, I think I'm called to that. The problem is I have to give up my insurance business and all my financial income to do it. And to jettison that and go off and start something new, and this is a for-profit ministry, but he had no clientele. He had to go build that clientele and invite people into it. And I, I tell you, it was one of the great experiences of my life to watch him wrestle with that sense of call, his willingness to kind of jettison what he had been involved with and start this new business, and now uh, that's, that's thriving. So, but a major part of our time was listening to him, you know, teasing out what was going on in his heart in terms of this new life call and direction uh, that he had. And then when you get into the deep waters... Uh, when the water is up to here, that's when the place where you get to the mutual confessional stage, when you trust each other so much that you are willing to share those secrets uh, in your life. Uh, Ralph, what's that statement that your staff member shared uh, about secrets? We're what, seek as our secrets? We're sick as our secrets. And we're, we're bound up by our secrets. Um, some call these the besetting sins, the long-term issues in our life, um, I, I would venture to guess that every one of us has some version of that in our life, that uh, things that we have wrestled with over long periods of time, whether it's patterns of thinking or action or things that we're, we are ashamed about that are stuffed in our past that we hope stays there, but um, we need to tell somebody about uh, just so that we can uh, hear that confession. In the same group that Grant was in, uh, a man by the name of Chuck was in that group. Uh, Chuck had had a pattern 
that we were unaware of when he started the group, and it was a pattern of financial mismanagement. Uh, he would run up major charges on a credit card, unbeknownst to his wife. And finally, about six months into our group, he says, I've got to tell you guys something. I've got this credit card that I have sent to my office rather than to home, so my wife doesn't know about it. And I've got $50,000 worth of charges on it, and I can't pay it off. And I've, this is the fourth time I've done it. Um, and I know I've got to tell my wife, but he told us first. <laughs> and we had, were able to kind of hold his hand through that process. Uh, his wife is livid. Uh, I was not sure whether the marriage was going to survive. I was the pastor involved, so I was sat down with both of them and walked them through that, that process. Uh, Ralph and I just spent some time with them in Jacksonville, Florida recently, and they're doing wonderfully. Thanks to a gracious wife, I must say. I think I would have killed him as well. So, so but uh, these, again, these are, and then we become his accountability partners after that, in terms of how he's, how he's doing with that. Uh, you see the Bonhoeffer quote on your notes there, uh, out of Life Together. In confession, the breakthrough to community takes place. Sin demands to have a man by himself, a woman. Uh, it withdraws him or her from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive, destructive will be the power of sin over him. And the more deeply he becomes involved with it, the more disastrous is his isolation. In confession, the light of the gospel breaks into the darkness and seclusion of the heart. Since the confession of sins is made in the presence of a Christian brother or sister, the last stronghold of justification is abandoned. It's a powerful statement. Um, so bringing things out of the darkness of our own spirit into the light of day, into the light of God, uh, in itself, I think, is a, is a, reduces the power of that, that sin to control us. And, you know, ultimately, uh, we hope that can, groups can get to this point. Not all of them do, obviously, in terms of this kind of depth of, of openness. So... Um, Just uh, thought, thoughts, or, thoughts or comments about that? Is it sort of an obsession about yeah. something yeah. That, uh, that they sounds like a need for counseling? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, these groups are not designed to be counseling groups. Uh, so um, I, I don't know. If, if, you were the, if you were the point leader, uh, sometimes I would take somebody aside rather than try to deal with it in, in front of the group and, and try to talk, have an honest conversation with them. And maybe even say to the point, you know, this, this is not something we can continue to process in this group. It sounds like you maybe need some outside help uh, with this. Um, so there's certain things that we're just not trained and equipped to deal with. So I probably would handle that, try to handle that one-on-one -on -one if I was the point leader in the group. Yeah. Other things about, so getting down to this kind of, place of transparent trust and openness as a place of where the word of God intersects the real stuff of our lives is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. Because so often we do Bible studies, we're learning more information, uh, we're acquiring content. Uh, there are even some Bible studies where they say well, you can't share personal stuff. It's all about information that you are to get. And my thinking is, really? What, what good is just more 
compartmentalized information unless it does actually get seated in your, inside your being and change your life. And that's what the whole purpose of this is all about. Yeah, Ralph, you can jump in here too, I think, as well on that. There's, yeah, there's, um, especially when you're having such an experience like you're having, you know, I, I think the, not all groups are equal in terms of the level of, of camaraderie and chemistry that occurs. The one that I've been referring to here with both Grant and Chuck was one of those kind of groups. And we, I think we met initially almost monthly afterwards and then shifted to quarterly after we were done. And anytime I'm in Chicago, we have a reunion. <laughs> well, one of the guys is not there anymore. He's in Jacksonville. Um, but um, that, it was that kind of group in terms of that. And another group um, that Dave was in, the, the insurance guy, uh, and that, that group met uh, again, again initially monthly afterwards and stayed connected. But you will always have a special relationship. Um, yeah, you girls, you girls do those so well. Mm-hmm. You know, your relationships get tight so fast, and so it's it's more difficult for for you than probably for us guys. You know, to give up on this. But you never lose. You never. I still have my first group. You know, I still I'm still close close friends with those guys, and I always will be. I mean, we spent a year together in intensive relationship and study and growth together, and we're still growing and. One of them just got back from two, three days ago from a trip to Mozambique teaching discipleship over there because he's, I mean, that's, he started at ground zero and now he's going around teaching this stuff. Um, you watch each other grow, you watch these things mature, and it just gets more and more fun. So you don't ever lose it. Uh, it just changes. Yeah, I think you're pointing out one of the biggest challenges, though, uh, with this whole process because... Obviously, once you find a community where you have this sense of, I don't know, connectedness that is at, like you've never had it before, uh, you don't want to give it up. Uh, and so you've got these competing values. You've got this, yes, we want community where we feel a part of something, but we've got this value of multiplication and sharing. We can't hoard it. We've got to give it away. Um, that's built into the tension in the, within the, the tug of the Christian life. If you just hold on to it, it sort of becomes the Dead Sea, right? The flow in, nothing flow out. Uh, but that experience shared with others and giving other people the opportunity to have the same kind of thing is, I guess, what we're trying to hold on to as well. Yeah. Does your model promote um, multiplication after a year or two years? Or well, yeah. I, would, I would say it promotes it immediately. You know, I've got a group that so, just... No, I mean, when do you... Start new I have I have a guy that just we're in we're in lesson seventeen and he started his for his next group last Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Seventeen already, out of twenty five. He's already jumped in. But, so some, but, he, but he will stay with you. Though. Yeah, people and he's still in my group and yet he started another group. Uh, it depends on the individuals and where they are in their own spiritual development. If they're ready, I say go, and I'm there to watch them and coach them through as they're still coming to my group but starting their group. Who was that guy that's uh, doing that? That's Jake Locker. Any, anybody here from, from the area? <laughs> yeah. Quarterback. Yeah, former quarterback for Tennessee Titans, and he and his, you know, he's already started, ready to start his group. I mean, the guy is, he hit the ground running. I mean, he no more got in our group, and he's starting to ready to reproduce. He's working with F Fellowship of Christian Athletes and stuff, and so. But that's the individual he was. But the rule of thumb is about a year to year and a, a year and a quarter. Yeah, I I, um, I went through it with my pastor, my senior pastor, and he's finished his group, 
uh, one of the guys has already started this group that was in there who's just a businessman, but the senior pastor is still struggling to get his group together. And when we get together, and we still get together on a, uh, every three or four weeks, we get together, and the other one of the guys in the group says, come on, pastor, you got plenty of people in your church. I mean, he's really riding him, you know, so he's, he's, he's really under pressure now. So he's, I suspect next time he's going to have his group, but, you know, uh, yeah, it just Good. depends on the individuals. And, but you coach them through that, and that's part of the disciples' role is you're not done until they're having their groups and their groups are being successful. So you just keep keep working. Sometimes it yeah. can be a natural extension of the group, though, not to just meet in the group. You could do with your wives. You can get yeah. together and meet socially. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, that can continue on. And you're still keeping, you know, touching on what's going different on ways, yeah. Lives. And usually you get to, during the time that your group is meeting, you get together with your spouses as well. So whether it's women's groups or men's groups, yeah. Good. Um, so we got about 20 minutes left here. Let's turn to this. This turn your page over on your notes. Uh, I'm only focusing on two of the four life, uh, two, two of the four conditions for transformation here, uh, simply because of time. And I think these are probably the two most important ones. But I, I forgot to, you know, advance my slides here. Uh, speed read. <laughs> Life change accountability. Okay, GDI value. Um, intentional, disi intentional discipleship requires purposeful covenantal and relational investment. So built upon a covenant. You can see the covenant that we use in Discipleship Essentials is printed here on the page. Uh, so you can do that. But again, I want you to get back in your groups and answer a couple questions. What is a mutual covenant and why might this be important? And what happens if there's not a clear covenant to which all are committed? What will be the consequences uh, of lack of covenant? And my guess is all of you have experienced that. Any of us served on church committees? Are you all buying in at the same level? Why? You've never asked the commitment. <laughs> You've never had a clarity of, of commitment or co a covenant that you made. So jump into your groups, uh, work on these couple questions, and I'll... And pull you back together. Thank you for your engagement. I'm going to start with a second question here for feedback from you. What happens if there is not a clear covenant to which all are committed? What are the consequences of that? Uh, if it, people don't know expectations. Yeah. So why is that important to know expectations? So the mutuality of commitment to the same thing and holding each other. It puts a, it puts a tool in the hands of your leader as well. If, if you don't have clarity about what you're committed to, how can you call people back to what? You know, what you, what's the focus? So expectations. Expectations also kind of ratchets up a bit the level of intensity of commitment too. If you're let, setting it out there, you're saying, okay, you're calling me up here uh, to a little bit higher. Yeah. It seems that Jesus... Uh he got popular, but uh, in the large group setting, he would say, unless you hate mother, father, sister, brother, your own self, you cannot be my disciple. He's, so in a sense, he was asking for that commitment, very very real sense, mm -hmm. uh, for those that are willing to go further. Yes, amen. Thank you. I don't want to get off track here, but can you define what you're talking about as far as the definition of covenant? 
Because okay, here's my definition. De a covenant is a mutual agreement between two or more parties that states the expectations and commitments in the relationship. Not once you have made the commitment. I mean, initially you can, you certainly are clarifying what it is you're, you're committing it to, but once you commit yourself to it. Um, okay. A covenant is a mutual agreement between two or more parties that states the expectations and commitments in the relationship. So, uh, I, I don't know if I, was that satisfying to you? I, I'm not sure that I felt that that was satisfying to you. I guess for me, covenant is, is, is an identity thing that you're coming, you're taking on, you're offering yourself completely wholly to another person. He's offering, you know. Like well, there's different kinds of covenants. There's a marriage covenant. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's really there's serious. A, there's a covenant with Christ, too. <laughs> yeah, so that's right. And we have so the old of, covenant and new covenant. And, and so and the whole the covenant. Yes. It's, it's God who is empowering that, and he's the guarantor of it, basically. Okay. Well, yeah, we can get into the, the so, yeah, we can get into the biblical covenant in terms of God's the role of God. But in terms of what we're talking about here, in terms of the relational covenant between people, and I guess it is before God, so you're making that commitment uh, to each other before God, and therefore it should be have that sense of solemnness uh, to it as well. Would you say it's, it is different than a contract? Yeah, um, well, I mean, we can get into the, 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 the covenantal, you know, God makes an unconditional covenant to us, and I will be your God and you shall be my people. And he lays out the conditions of the covenant, too, and we call those the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, in terms of this is the way you should live. Um, and so a, a, a covenant or a contract is an if-then relationship. Now, if I do this, then you do that. If I don't do this, then you're free from, from doing that. Well, God makes an unconditional covenant to us, a commitment to us. And so on that level, it's, it's different. Uh, you know, and do we always fulfill our covenants? No. Um, I had a professor in seminary that he said, we are most like God when we keep our promises. And uh, so, so at the heart of God is certainly a covenant-making, a covenant-keeping God. And in a sense, we are reflecting that here in terms of making a covenant with each other uh, in this way. But... I would say for most people, this even just stating openly what it is that we're mutually expected to commit ourselves to is a major step up from what most people have done. And, and some would be, I've heard some say to me, I'm not signing anything. You know, what, what are you afraid of? You know, what's the concern here? Because we always have a little signing ceremony at the beginning of our new group. You know, we're reviewing the covenant, we're going over it. It's time to, to sign in front of each other. Um, you know, it's an important thing to, to do that. And I think the reason I brought that up, because I recently, I was teaching and talking about a covenant of surrender. Surrender, you know, mm -hmm. giving up your rights. Right. All that kind of stuff. And someone said, I'm, I'm not going to do that because I, God says, let your yes be yes and your no be no, and that you shouldn't make mm -hmm. vows and promises and things like that. Yeah. So I guess there's this little unsettled piece of me, you know, or how do we, how do we. Yeah. I think on a, on a human level, knowing our own fallibilities, uh, we say to each other as best as I understand my ability to make a commitment, I will, com I will follow through on these, these things I've, I've stated that I will commit myself to. And I, then I'm giving you the authority to come after me if you see that I'm not fulfilling that covenant. I think that's part of the, the, part of the agreement. Because in Discipleship Essentials, at least after chapters, lessons 8 and 16, we have an opportunity to review and renew the covenant. 
So it's an opportunity to go back to what we've stated we do. We self-evaluate, go through the five elements of the covenant. We evaluate how we've done to keep those. We articulate our sense of how we've completed that in front of each other. We ask the question, um, you know, uh, what have been the benefits so far of this experience together? Uh, then I ask the next question, what, what have been the disappointments so far in, in our time together? What have you expected that has not happened? And, uh, and then a lot of that usually has to do with how much time we're spending in the lesson versus personal sharing and those kinds of things. But it, has, it gives you an opportunity to kind of redistribute your time or review and renew the covenant and do something different, you know, to address the disappointments there. Okay. I have a question. Yeah, sure. Um, have, you, have you ever had a case where somebody doesn't keep covenant? Have we ever had a case where somebody doesn't keep covenant? <laughs> Is that a rhetorical question? <laughs> <laughs> How did you deal with it? And if it is that you ask somebody or they opted to leave the group, do you replace them? Um, yeah, yes, I've definitely had people that have not uh, kept covenants. Um, and, you know, you try to be both long-suffering, I think that's the word patience in Scripture, while reminding people, while reminding them, oftentimes it has to do with completing the work necessary, so coming prepared um, with your material done. Sometimes it has to do with showing up on time. Um, I've had one guy in my our group that I'm thankful that we have stayed with him because it took him a long time to get kicked in. He would, he would text us at two minutes to seven, and our group meets at seven. Sorry, I'm running late. You know, I'll see you in a half hour. How many times can you do that? And uh, but this happened a number of times. And fortunately, we we get on him. You know, um, but somehow it was. I don't know what happened there, but it kicked in finally for him. And now it's sacrosanct that he is there every time on time. But boy, was I frustrated because I would show up each week and like, okay, is Conrad going to text us here? Two minutes before time. Oh, there it is. You know, um, see you in forty-five minutes. Get there. You know, forty-five minutes after we start. Come breathlessly into the group. He's got this kind of personality where he kind of takes over everything. Anyhow, uh, so everything stops. Uh, but somehow, you know, we, we stayed with him, and it's been it's been great. Yeah. But a transition. Uh, there was another part to your question. Replace them. Generally not. Um, Discipleship groups tend to be closed groups during the time that they, they meet together. Uh, we, that's why one of the reasons why we like quads more than triads. And so if you actually lose a person and go down to three, you still have the same dynamic in place. Uh, so, so groups of three and four are, are really what we are saying ideally is what we want. And so there is that, that chance that you would lose somebody for various reasons, somebody moves away, whatever. Um, but since the group has developed such a tight relationship and you have a history together, you know each other's stories, it's hard to bring somebody in and that size group uh, after you've already you know, been well into it. Yeah. Yeah. You experienced now you retired. Any <laughs> difference in leading a group as a pastor of the people that you're leading that group of, or as someone who is not their current pastor? Hmm. I'm not sure if I've reflected on that a whole lot. 
I guess not. I guess I don't see the whole lot of difference in terms of the dynamics of that. I mean, I'm, I guess as I was a pastor, obviously in a recognized role rather than, you know, somebody who's just part of the congregation doing this on my own initiative. Well, I've um, wondered that. often if I would be a better discipler if I were not a pastor because of the assumptions that come from their different perspective, culture, growing up of who I am because uh-huh. of my role. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that's, that may be very, very true in terms of what they're, they're how. You know, here's what I found. Um, people see you as the pastor in the group initially, and maybe even see you as the Bible answer man. You know, we've got a difficult theological question. Oh, let's turn to, I don't know your name, but um, you get, get the answer. Frankly, after a number of sessions, you become a part of the group. They don't see you as the pastor in that group anymore. And I don't know if that's the way you saw it, Ralph, as well. And that's one of the things I love about it. Because when I was doing one-on-one discipling as a pastor with somebody else, you know, I was the teacher and the other person was the student. And when you move into a group of four, you're a part of the group. Uh, you may have convened it, um, but you're on this journey with them. And you start sharing your stories with each other. You know your, your faith journeys together, your ups and downs that you have experienced. And you're, you're it. You're part of it. That's one of the things I loved about it as a pastor. I didn't have to be the pastor in the group, in a, in a sense. You also said in the last session that it was important for that senior pastor to set the, the tone by having their own group and right. how, how good that can be for giving an example. Yeah, well, I'll steal Ralph's line. Jesus didn't delegate discipleship, and neither should we as pastors. You can't delegate it to somebody else. You've got to so, model it, you've got to lead it. It wouldn't be a one and done either. He would be continuing on as part of the multiplication. Uh, say that again. Pastor, you wouldn't be one and done. Oh, no, no. That's the lifestyle. <laughs> what, I mean, what, we're, what we're after here is a lifestyle of disciple making. Yeah. And that's what we're trying to build into the people that we're seeing in the, in the groups as well. Uh, it's not just a, you know, yes, the covenant says to do this at least one time following the initial completion of discipleship essentials. Uh, but the whole desire is to build into the rest of your life, see this as a part of your life. Always have a, a group that you are convening and having in your life. Um, I've done this for, what, 33 years now or something like that? I don't know that there's ever been a time when I've not had a discipleship group. In my life. Of course, I'm a pastor, but uh, so we hope to see that transfer over to, to any and everybody. You've been listening to the Disciple Makers Podcast. That message was from the Global Discipleship Initiative track at the National Disciple Making Forum. Download the free PDF that summarizes exactly how they teach people to do the microgroups that are made up of three or four people. Download it at discipleship.org global. That's discipleship.org global. May the Lord bless you as you seek to grow as a disciple maker.